I got involved with the Sydney Hall in uh, round about 1972. I worked for a company called Leisure for the People Limited, LFTP for short, and this was owned by a guy who lived in London called Jerry Cameron. And it was a, a bingo company. They, they had bingo clubs mainly in the Chatham area and in the London area. Then later on they bought big bingo clubs in Basildon, uh, Harlow in Essex, and they bought the Regal Portland. That was the start of it. And I moved down here to uh, run an antique business that, that I got involved in with uh, through a friend of mine who also worked. He worked in the bingo business and I did as well. But I came away from bingo, came to Portland to work, work in an antique shop and also to start up a cut price shop which I did, but um, unfortunately misunderstandings and, and uh, things with the people who actually owned the premises and uh, I came out of that and I, I suppose I was out of work for about two or three weeks and the Regal Portland, my friend who was the manager there, was moving up to Dover to open another club for Jerry Cameron and he said, do you want to run this one? So I took over the Regal Portland. That's when it all started. And so that was a bingo, that was a bingo. It was full-time bingo club then, yeah. There is another site called Portland, Pictures of Portland or something, uh, which I, I'm on. And recently we had, there's been some discussion on there about the, the Regal. And one of the first comments was, though, the last film I saw there was Jaws. Well, no, it wasn't because Jaws didn't come out until 1975. And that was actually full-time bingo from about 1970. So people forget these things and they get their, get themselves mixed up. But uh, I've got quite a good memory for that sort of thing. So I can usually, like with the Sydney Hall one, uh, the comment that I put on there, which was to try and put straight... Is, is, the Regal, is the Regal the one in Fulton's World? I think it was, yeah, that's right. Yeah, It was the, uh, it was the Regal Cinema. Because I have shown little films there in the last four, three or four years. Sorry, they have shown films there in the last three or four years. They've had like a little film film club. Not like in the last three or four years, they haven't. Yeah, the one before. No, you're thinking of the the theatre. Oh, am I? Which oh, okay. is there's the Royal Manor Theatre, yes. which is actually in an old church. Yes. But just up above that, uh, about hundred yards past that, on the left, was the old Regal Bingo Club. Well, it was the old Regal Cinema. Yeah. Um, but that was pulled down. Well, many years ago now, I can't remember exactly when. And did, did they have used to have musical acts on there as well as bingo? Was it just that was after after the bingo days. Right. Um, when we took it over, I well, say Jerry took it over in 1970, I think it was. And I took it, I took over the management of it in 71. I think it was 71, and. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, in, in around about 1978, uh, Jerry died, uh, the chap who owned the company, and all the capital gains tax that he'd been rolling over and over for years, opening new clubs and things, it all came due in one lump. But as, soon as, as soon as he passed away, the tax man was at the door there you know, with his hand out. And so uh, he, his wife just liquidated the, the whole thing, went into liquidation. And uh, not, it wasn't just little, down here by that time. We had the, the Regal Portland, 
we had the Sydney Hall and we also had the big cinema in the middle of the town which was originally many years ago the old market hall uh, it's the one that's now in bits in a quarry somewhere or in a field somewhere that's uh, been preserved supposedly um, but with the Regal and uh, the Sydney Hall and that was our little bit down here and then there was another bit in Chatham and another bit in London and another bit in Harlow and Essex and it was quite a big business but of course he he set it up in such a way that he ran it and oversaw everything and he it was all in his name so when he died they wanted the tax and uh, it just didn't have that sort of cash lying about you know it was all in the business so eventually if you'd had a lot of time you could have liquidated it gradually and perhaps got the money back but his wife uh, just put it into liquidation and that was the end of it um, unfortunately at that time uh, I think the Regal at Portland was the last bit to go and then it, it, in later years it became a nightclub and uh, eventually burnt down in I don't know what year it was I, I can't remember you can look it up mm. it's, it's uh, but that, I, I had nothing to do with it at that time you know mm. I'd been out of it for quite a while right, so you, you were just there at the initial stage um, running it as a bingo hall a full time bingo hall yeah it was run as a full time bingo club we did try an experiment with a chap who had a 16mm uh, cinema operation that he went around in halls and things um, and he wanted to try Saturday morning shows and we did do that for a few weeks uh, sometime during the time we were there but uh, it wasn't successful and it was only showing sort of Saturday morning pictures uh, let me think I can't tell you very much about any of these premises after I left there I can mm. tell you what happened to them while I was there and also a bit of the history of them before mm -hmm. uh, one of the interesting things about the Regal at Portland was that we had a customer who used to come to bingo an old boy called Ernie and he'd actually worked on the building of the of the Regal in 19 that's around about 1920 I think he'd actually built done the carpentry when it was built and he knew all the the rakes on the floor and the incline and all the angles and he actually had it all in his head he was quite an interesting old boy um and it was nice to know, to know somebody who'd actually built it you know mm -hmm. And so the connection goes from there right to the time when it was burnt down and uh, was eventually I did go in it and have a look at it after it burnt down and uh, and it was then pulled down and there's now a block of flats on the site you can't miss it because it's sort of set right, right at the back of the site um, but anyway that's the Regal the, the Sydney Hall uh, when, when the thing came up on the uh, on the on the site the website it interested me because I I know everybody thinks that Sidney Groves' son was killed in the First World War, but he wasn't. Uh, he died, I think he died of a disease of some sort. And his father gave the Sydney Hall to the uh, for the use of the Church Lads Brigade. I think that was the idea, was the Church Lads Brigade would do their drill and everything in there. And the trustees who look supposed to look after it for the youth of the town were the church 
but uh, of course they're the ones who eventually sold it and uh, it's interesting because you had um, a lady called Pauline Swanee answered the uh, asked the question on there and uh, Pauline was the landlord uh, the landlady of the Belvedere pub and in the days when we ran the Sydney Hall and I used to have the occasional uh, scotch after work that's where we would go as our local sort of thing so uh, I know Pauline and uh, she remembered me but uh, the fact of the matter was that it was uh, eventually sold to the football club and the football club already owned the small Sydney Hall which was the bit on the other end furthest away from the, the main roundabout and uh, they bought the, the rest of it from the church and then of course when the developers came in to, and wanted to build the new supermarket which is now Asda it wasn't Asda at the time I can't, can't remember who it was actually but it wasn't uh, any of the ones that exist now it was one of the ones that have, the names died out uh, and then Asda bought it from them but uh, the the deal there was the football clubs didn't actually own the football ground which was behind it again uh, that, that was owned by the council and leased to the football club on a peppercorn rent and that's what should have should have stayed like that and the football club would never have had the problems that it's had since if they'd have left it like that but of course once they owned the Sydney Hall and they could get the new stadium for the, uh, actually for the football club was given to the football was given arranged deals etc so that the football club actually owned it and that's when the rot set in and you got a huge asset like that of course it's so easy to borrow money against it mm. and that's what they did but anyway that's uh, that's later on but while the Sydney Hall was actually standing um and uh, my original involvement with it, with it was that I was the general manager of the, the two at, to start off with Regal Portland and the Sydney Hall and then later on also the cinema in the middle of town which had been the Gaumont it had been the Odeon before that and because the cinemas in Wayne swapped names round uh, originally what ended up as the classic cinema that was the Odeon uh, then the, the Gaumont which was the big one in the centre of town that became the Odeon and the classic became the classic and then when we took it over the cinema in the middle of the town which had been the Odeon became the new Invicta so th that was because the uh, bingo club in Chatham was called the Invicta bingo club and that was just a continuation of the name so it's quite, it's quite amazing to think how popular bingo was. was enormously popular. To, to, you know, that you had three big places. The yeah, the, um, the two of them, of course, were solely bingo by that time. That was the uh, Sydney Hall and the Regal uh, did nothing but bingo. The cinema in the middle of town, when Rank decided to dispose of it, it was a choice really they either we either bought it or did a deal with them of some sort to lease it or they were going to go over to full-time bingo well that would have killed the Sydney Hall and probably the Regal because rank 
very big organisation. I, I did work for them for several years uh, back in the 60s. Um, and if they opened up in a town, they would probably take most of the business with just the sheer weight of money. Um, so, you know, we didn't want them to. We didn't want them to go full time bingo. They were running bingo on a Sunday because Sydney Hall, being a church-owned property, we couldn't actually operate on a Sunday. We, we used to um, close on Sundays. So, uh, it, when we first took it over, uh, we took it over as potentially going to be a bingo hall but then we decided to keep the Sydney Hall the bingo and the Regal and carry on running the um, New Invictor as a cinema and just run bingo on a Sunday which when we couldn't do it in the Sydney Hall and so that's what we did we were only there for about a year before Jerry died and, and then it all went uh, all got sort of, sold out, sort of piecemealed out Got piecemealed out and sold off then, did it? When he died? Uh, when he places? died, yeah. The, um, I the, sort of remember the football club had already bought the, the Sydney Hall, um, and we were, but we were only tenants there anyway. We wanted to buy the Sydney Hall. In fact, we actually got so far as we had signed a contract with the church to, to buy the Sydney Hall, but then we were gazumped at the last minute, and um, there was wheels within wheels, and, you know, <laughs> I won't say too much about that, but I'm sure that uh, uh, somebody at some stage had told somebody else who perhaps they shouldn't have told something. But anyway, it, it's in the past now. And uh, that had um, was just we were we were leasing that basically, so that just went back to the football club, and they then leased it out for I think it was for document storage or something. So they ran it. They, they kept it for, for a while afterwards until the developers wanted to develop the supermarket there. And sorry, did you, did you have a question there, Joe? You, you, no, 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 I was just well, um, cause, cause I sort of faintly remember that the what, like you say, what was the Odeon was just a, become just a bingo hall at some stage. Is that right? Which one? The, the what was the what was the Odeon? Yes, the right one. Yeah, because yeah. when when we came out, the, uh, the that reverted to rank. Um, I don't know quite what deal Jerry had done when he took it over, whether we were leasing it or whether he bought it and with a, with a, a comeback on it and he hadn't paid for it. I, I don't know. But um, that reverted to Top Rank and Top Rank then turned it over to, to Bingo because obviously the main, main Bingo hall in the town had gone. So they, they turned it over completely to Bingo. And uh, the Regal Portland carried on for a little while until that eventually closed down as well. And um, what, sort of, what, sort of, what sort of period, years are we talking about then, do you know? I think the whole thing was in under a year, I think, from start to finish, it was all closed and done. Um, it, it all really it all resulted because Jerry died. If he, if he did sort of managed to survive, he wasn't very, he was only in his 50s. And uh, I think if he had lived, then he would have just carried on, mm. and he was rolling over. What he would do, he would actually buy a bowling alley, because in those days we had the big ten pin bowling thing, 
and a lot of huge buildings have been put up on industrial estates and this sort of thing as bowling alleys and the interest had gone uh, people weren't interested in, in that uh, on that scale now the ones in Harlow and um, I think it's Basildon was the other one that come to mind and uh, I know I think the one in Harlow I actually got involved in the opening of that um, and that was an amazing place I mean you take the a great big empty building and turned it into the most beautiful bingo club it was really lovely and uh, if, if a bingo club could be lo lovely you know mm. uh, but very popular and very busy and what he would do he would build it up open it build it up and then sell it to Mecca so Mecca then would pay him whatever he, he'd make so much profit but he would never touch that profit he'd roll it straight into another another building so that he didn't have to pay the capital gains tax, and um, that was fine until he inadvertently died. So when, so when you say so when you say popular, so how many people would attend the Regal or the Sydney Hall? The Regal is a little bit different. Well, that's Portland, and Portland's a little bit of a rule unto itself. Um, the Sydney Hall was a long time ago now because I. I think it was 1976 or 7 that it finally finished but certain mid mid 70s and at that time I know we used to be very busy on a, uh, a Monday night we used to do an all-in night I think it was recently stupid like 50p all-in you paid 50p and you got virtually a whole evening's entertainment for 50 pence um, and that we used to get about a thousand people in there for that and that's not a bad crowd mm -hmm. on a Monday night Thursday night used to be the busiest night of the week and, uh, to start off with because that was the big money night uh, and you'd have um, a flyer at the end of the evening which was just a single ticket and that might pay perhaps several hundred pounds as, as the first prize and going back to the mid 70s that was quite a lot of money um, and on a Thursday night I think we used to get eight, eight or nine hundred people then we started the Monday nights all in and that was much more popular it was just so cheap and you, you relied on getting a thousand people it, it held a thousand people so you relied really on getting close to the thousand in there to get enough money to, to pay decent prize money but um, and then you would you would provide up there. You could provide other services inside, like drinks or oh, refreshments, and, and you well, make money on that. You've got fruit machines. Yeah. Um, you've got uh, prize bingo. Um, we, have, we used to have raffle. Uh, I'm trying to think what else we used to have. We had a sort of card table thing. It was a, a, a legal gambling type game. Mm which looked like a, a card game but actually wasn't it was just bingo under a different guise but um, all those things made you, you know, your, your cafeteria buffet people would be uh, buying stuff there and raffle tickets would were quite popular you'd have a big display for your raffle and you might have um, things like a motor mower as one of the prizes or a complete suite of cutlery and uh, china with all the
dinner service, tea service, coffee service, all laid out with, uh, out of its boxes with the straw that it was packed in. Or, and you know, this, it, it, there's an art to it, but you can you can take a lot of money on that sort of thing. Well, you could then, can't now. Uh, I don't think any of that's legal now. I think all they've got is with bingo now is just what you take on the door and what you can get away with in participation fees, which was something that came in towards the end. But bingo is quite technical. Is um, people think it's just a silly game. But what's killed the bingo industry in this country, of course, is the television and the computers with uh, so many bingo games on it. Yeah. You know, things that you can play when you want at home and all that. Right, still, yeah. still gamble and win a few shillings, or or not, as the case may be. Because, yeah. um, like you say, it's quite it's quite surprising, isn't it? Because you don't like, you don't notice bingo at all, really. I can't say I notice it. There's only, I mean, now the only club in town is the one that used to be the tyre place in um, Crescent Street. Um, do you know where the doctor's surgery is in Crescent Street? Mm-hmm. If you go back towards the town, on the right, there's the, the old Buff Club. Just before you, just before you get to the old Buff Club, which is now closed down, uh, on the right is the um, oh, what are they called? Oh, can't even remember the name of it. So, yeah. not uh, go down much anymore. So, Gala, yeah. Gala Bingo. Oh, okay. And that used to be a tyre fitting garage. So it's not very big. I don't know how many seats they've got, but I would imagine that probably three hundred, perhaps four hundred, would be a, a, probably a little bit of a generous guess. Um, you do see people still outside there when they come out for a cigarette, you know, all this sort of thing. But um, I don't think it's anything like as popular as it no. used to be. No. Just a different Time thing entirely, yeah, though, yeah, you yeah. know. It's a different uh, ethos. Yeah. Uh, they, they, you can pick the computer up now, open it up and play bingo. It's mm. easy peasy. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't... Uh, it didn't happen in those days. It was quite a difficult thing to to get to play bingo, it was quite complicated. You had to go through a, the rigmarole of becoming a member of the club and you had to wait 24 hours. You couldn't just go in and they go, oh yeah, that's right, you're a member. You had to actually apply and then 24 hours would pass. Then you could be a member, you had to be over 18. And um, all sorts of rules and regulations. I mean, I had to pass a, a very strict a vetting uh, procedure by the gaming board when, because I was a director of LFTP at the end um, Jerry had two or three directors uh, his wife was one, his solicitor was one I was one, he was one and um, we had to pass a, a vetting by the, the gaming board for Great Britain to become what they, I think they called it a large independent. Um, you had small independent, large independent, chain, uh, national chain, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et all the stages of size of bingo club company, and um, we were becoming a large independent. And then we had to go to London and have interviews with the head of the gaming board and everything else before, uh, and we were investigated 
because they didn't want any American involvement, no gangster vo- involvement, and all that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know what they do now, <laughs> probably nothing at all. But um, at that time, it was quite a, a serious thing. You know, you, mm. you had well, to I say, that has, has changed, hasn't it, quite a bit, really? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I know I'm completely out of touch with mm. anything like that now, but um, I, I, I couldn't, I just don't know what they do now, mm. but it doesn't seem to be anything very much because of course they uh, would you like a tea or coffee yeah, tea or coffee uh, I'll, I'll just a black tea please yes black tea no yes. sugar no thanks oh she knows what I want yes I need to ask <laughs> yeah um, we've been married for 47 years so <laughs> she's probably yes. got to be used to it by now yeah. um, um, so, so you so you worked up that you worked at Sydney Hall until it closed I was at the Sydney Hall until sold over to the football club. Well, until uh, after that, because uh, we were in dispute with the football club at the beginning when they first bought it. Um, One of the first things they did, because in those days the directors were different to the the directors they've got now. One of the first things that they did was. um, They wanted to up our rent from. I think we were paying 800 a year rent. And they wanted to put it up to eleven and a half thousand. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some sort of slight difference of opinion there. And it actually, in the end, it went to arbitration. And I remember we had a very good barrister, a chap called Romy Tager, who was um, a Jewish chap, very, very good barrister. Very, and he, he had a fantastic manner. And this arbitration was held in the Prince Regent Hotel. Uh, it was quite informal you know the barristers were just dressed in ordinary suits and this sort of thing and he said to us beforehand he said what they'll do he said they'll take the difference between what you you're paying or so what what you're offering we were offering i think we were offering four thousand and they wanted eleven or eleven and a half and he said they'll take the difference between the two he said split it down the middle and that'll be what you'll pay he said so four eleven You'll, you'll end up paying seven and a half, and uh, we said, "Well, well, fair enough." But you'll do your best. He said, "Oh yes, yes, present it and everything." And uh, the football club based their uh, their estimate on what we should be paying by comparing us to a bingo club in Margate, which <laughs> you know, catchment area of about eight million people. And we had a catchment area of about fifty thousand. I think so it was really it, it was a nonsense. They they hadn't really done their homework at all. And uh, so when it came to the arbitration, in the end, um, I can't remember what we ended up paying, but it was considerably less than the seven and a half thousand. And this Roby Taylor was highly delighted, <laughs> very pleased about this. And uh, um, I had to give evidence and everything uh, of the demand for bingo and all this sort of thing because it wasn't the demand wasn't here not for bingo in the way that it was in Margate and in those days you could run sessions uh, in the morning in the afternoon and at night uh, in fact a few a couple of years before when I was running bingo in Swindon we'd actually held the, uh, the world record um, session which ran from 7 o'clock on Good Friday, right through till ten o'clock on Easter Monday night. Continuous bingo in this club in Swindon. Okay, right through uh, the religious holiday. 
Sorry? Right through the religious yes, holiday. Yes, because it did, that didn't apply to bingo. You went there, it, as long as you had a, an, an ordinary bingo club, is that only because the, we couldn't have done it at the Sydney Hall because the church wouldn't let us run on Sundays. But, strangely enough, another very quick thing there, talking about religious holidays, when we had the cinema, and uh, we were running it as a cinema, um, on, I think it was Good Friday, I got a call from... I can't remember now who it was, maybe somebody on the council. And they said, Oh, you do realise you won't be able to show your film on Good Friday? And I said, Why not? Well, it's uh, you know it's a religious holiday and we can't have you showing a film about rape in the deep south of America or something. I can't remember what the film was. And uh, something about like white line fever or something, I suspect. And he said, You'll have to, um, uh, you'll have to either not show a film at all or show something else that's acceptable and uh, he said and also the vicar from so and so and so and so will come along and, and would like to go on the stage and address uh, address your patrons <laughs> you don't remember that do you What's that? when we had the vicar came up to address the patrons at the cinema and um, <laughs> I said well that's fair enough that's what happens you know we'll, we'll, we'll go along with that and luckily we had a film that we were showing uh, on Saturday morning, I think it was, for the kids. And so we put that on instead. I can't remember what it was, but it was just an ordinary film. So we put a thing up outside saying, tonight, uh, Good Friday, the film will be so-and-so, not the... Uh, and uh, the vicar turned up, best bib and tucker. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, I... I like to go on the stage, he said, and uh, address the patrons just for a few moments. He said, Good Friday, you know, sort of religious connotations. I said, Yeah, that's fine, great. Well, in the end, uh, we actually had two people in. <laughs> We'd only opened the circle because um, we didn't open downstairs because with the, the heating system that it had in there was archaic and uh, very expensive to run. So you put it on for as short a time as possible. And the heat would rise and the circle would be quite warm. So you'd open that. And particularly for something like that, you're only going to show a film that wasn't going to be popular. And two people turned up. And they were sitting there. The, and I said to the vicar, I said, do you want to go on the stage or do you want to go and shake hands with them? <laughs> and so he said, I'll pop up and see them. <laughs> so he went along and shook hands with them and had a little chat. And that was it. I always remember that. <laughs> very, very strange uh, circumstances with uh, church-connected, you know. And that wasn't the building, because that building was just a, the old um, Jubilee Hall, I think it was called originally. And then they'd... Uh, the only thing you can see there now that has anything to do with it is the what was the... Oh, what's the name of it? It's the big nightclub bar in St Thomas Street with the steps going up mm. front yeah. I can't remember what they call it yeah, Tura, 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 Tura Bar or something yeah. I think it's closed at the moment mm. but that used to be the cinema manager's house yeah. and that was actually hidden from view by the facade of the cinema and the shops next to it which was Compton's and that, that's all, that all went uh, during the grand clearance and redesign 
and they move Compton's further back down. But um, that uh, that house was just hidden from view. It was derelict. Uh, I say derelict. It, the pigeons lived in the upper floor. Uh, it was the most amazing house. It lovely. It, it had a staircase. That was one of those staircases that has sort of concrete steps that come out of the wall, and there's nothing supporting them. They just sort of stick out like that and, and go up. And it was in a sort of big spiral, not not a tight spiral staircase, but it went round a big sweep and on up. So it must have been really impressive when it was built. Oh, it's a fantastic open. Georgian building. It's a lovely Georgian building. And um, the, the front door of the cinema manager's house was actually in the foyer of the cinema. So you went up the steps through the doors of the cinema, and there was the, the foyer went on down through, and you had your ticket office and your uh, kiosk and all this sort of thing. And on the right, just at the beginning of it, there was a beautiful big Georgian door, and that was the door to the house. I only went in there three or four times just to, to look at it, really, because it was such a, a, an amazing building inside. And it, was, it hadn't been used for years and years and years. The last time they'd used it, many years before, was as, as the cinema manager's house. Oh, OK, that's interesting. I have often looked at it and think, where was that house? Because I can remember the cinema, like I say, coming out that's onto right. the front with the frontage. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, it's, and it's always sort of slightly confused me when I looked at the house. Cause I think it is it, confusing, yeah. You know, the cinema was it. It's like, and they kind of just knocked <laughs> Did it they suddenly it. build that yeah. house there? Yeah. And that's what it looked like it happened. Um, but that's what it is. When they built the uh, the cinema, and of course they built the foyer, because there was only a narrowish gap going through to where the hall was, so they the house was there, and then you had this fairly narrow gap. I suppose the foyer wasn't much wider than this room, but it's a little bit. Uh, and as it went through, you had the ticket office, and then you'd have your kiosk and your hot dogs and this sort of thing. But uh, Yes, that's solved a mystery for you. Then that's where that house came from. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the manager's house. Yeah, back in the days when cinema was like bingo, was extremely popular. So, so popular. Um, and the silly thing is that uh, with the cinema, we had that cinema. Unfortunately, we had it at the completely the wrong time. Uh, I could have done really, really well with that cinema. But with cinema, you're limited um, in, that, in those days. I don't know how it works now, but it used to work on a release system, and you'd have two main streams of film release. That was ABC release and rank release. Now, being a rank cinema, this the old uh, Gaumont, or as it became the new Invictor, we had the rank release, and the ABC release went to the classic which was the flea pit down in, um, I can't remember what it's called now. Behind what, no, was, behind what was the Gloucester Bars? But yeah, I, don't know, I can't remember, remember the name of the street. I remember the, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's, hotel, yeah. it's a hairdresser's now. But they, they pulled it all down and built a hairdresser's. Um, yeah, um, that got the ABC release. Now that was a little... I think it was four or five hundred seats and the Odeon what had been the Odeon was um, I think that was a thousand seats just over a thousand 
big circle, big huge stalls, uh, everything you want in a cinema really, a really good old fashioned cinema. And the year that we had it, the main release for the ABC release was Jaws, which did unbelievable business. I mean, they ran the film, they ran it for three weeks to start off with. And although it was so popular, the, the renters, the people who rent the film to you, it works on a shares basis. And what they would do, they would say, right, we've got this film coming and you'll have to take it for three weeks. The first week, it's 100%. That means you pay us 100% of your box office takings. So you paid 100% of your box office takings for the film. Now, there is, there was a, a, an allowance in this. You were allowed to keep your basic costs. That You had a figure for the cinema, which was your running costs for your basic week. You could take that, and then everything after that went to the renter company. And so you made nothing at all, really, on the film. Doesn't matter if you got... 200 people in, 500 people, whatever. You didn't make any money on the film. Same the second week. And the third week, it went down to 95%. This was Jaws. They accused, down at the Classic, they accused around the block for every performance for three weeks. And, of course, you made huge amounts of money on your sales, your ice creams and all this sort of thing. Your sales were enormous and vast profits on that as well. It's the same now. You go to the cinema and you get a box of popcorn and it's four pounds the cost on that is about tons so you know it's three pound 98 profit for the cinema and it was the same then in competition to this we had on the rank release we had a re-release of the sound of music <laughs> we were getting about 20 people <laughs> yeah. you know, we lost money hand over fist all through that summer it was a nice summer for the cinema as well and um, we just didn't have any decent films at all uh, on that year uh, that we had the cinema. All the films we had were pretty much second rate. And ABC had Jaws, and that was all they needed, really, because it came back again a couple of weeks later for another three-week run. And again, this time it came back at 90%. And it never went lower than about 85 or 80 so the, the renters made huge amounts of money out of it, but the cinema did really, really well. Do I remember that summer for uh, that mm. year for for films? We were not blessed. We did our best. Mm. We did a lot of publicity stuff. We had uh, stunts being going on and getting our name in the paper and pictures of this and that. Didn't if you haven't got the film, mm. <laughs> you're wasting your time. Really, yeah, especially if you've got a competition at that. Such a major film like Jaws. That was it. It was such a major film. Mm. Everybody remember, remembered Jaws as, mm. as being this sort of one of the great films of all time. It wasn't that good a film actually, but yeah. it was it, it was quite frightening. And the mm. bit where the head drops down inside the boat, you know, and, and every yeah, jumps. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially being Weymouth with the seafront. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> but, um, but I wonder how many. It put, I, I, mean, I bet it put a lot of people off going swimming. <laughs> certainly put me off I know I know my niece used to be scared of going swimming it's, it can be quite frightening I mean Dorian she swims in the sea every day in the summer uh, even now and uh, a couple of years ago two or three years ago 
uh, had a dolphin that came up to her, you know, and she was actually in the water with the dolphin. And they made, they made them all get out of the water because they said it could be dangerous, but didn't seem to be, he didn't seem to be dangerous. He was quite quite happy just swimming about amongst the people. But of course, it's got a dorsal fin. Mm. <laughs> See that coming? Could well be a bit of a slight mistake there. Yeah, yeah, such yeah. a great white shark. But uh, most sharks won't. They're not really interested in attacking you unless you pretend to be a penguin, and then, then they'll, they'll uh, yeah. enjoy themselves. Mm. Anyway, digressing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Go on then. Um, Sorry. No, no. I'm just thinking. So, so, so Sydney Hall, and, and then you run in the cin- you run in the cinema, and you run in Sydney Hall. Yeah. Um. So that that business all gets sold off and dispersed. Yeah. Now, in the meantime, um, not being completely stupid, I had noticed that this was coming. Um, and when Jerry died, of course, we, it was a, a certainty. But uh, there was always a possibility that things would go uh, uh, the wrong way up because of rank opposing us and this sort of thing. And uh, I had a, the manager in the uh, in the Sydney Hall, who was my uh, I, I was a sort of general manager between eventually between the three. And I had a manager in each place except for the cinema, which I managed overall. And I had a sort of an assistant there. But uh, my manager in the Sydney Hall was a chap called Ray Wilkins, still lives in Weymouth, lovely lovely chap, and um, we used to go occasionally after work we would go down to town and have a drink in one of the nightclubs and that was the Shield Club owned by a chap called Roy Carter and uh, we got quite friendly with Roy going down there just we would just go down and have a, a, a drink after work so it would be about midnight so you couldn't go in the pubs because they all closed at 11 or half past 10 I can't remember it was half past 10 or 11 in those days but quite early and uh, so we would go to one of the uh, to well to the Shield Club, which it suited us. It was a, a little drinking type club rather than very loud disco, you know. And um, we got talking to Roy Carter and got quite friendly with him. And one day he said to uh, Ray and myself, he said, yeah, "Would you be interested in buying this place?" And we said, "Well, why?" And he said, "Well, I'm." going bankrupt he said <laughs> and uh, it was a long involved story but, but what happened he'd um, he had the salad bowl restaurant he had the porthole restaurant and he had the shield club and they were all in the same little block the salad bowl was in church passage downstairs and then the shield club was above it and the porthole restaurant was at the end next to it and the shield club went across over the top of that and he leased this from uh, I think the head lease was owned by uh, Rob Johnson but the yeah I think it was Rob Johnson anyway he had a lease from whoever it was who owned the building but he said I've got to go bust he said I'm not he, he was a great starter of businesses, Roy Carter. He started, I mean, the Porthole was the most popular restaurant in Weymouth. It was a lovely restaurant. 
he had a very good maitre d um pancho and then later on pancho was replaced by another one called gigi and they were both absolutely brilliant you know, they could really make you feel you you felt you were special when you went there they looked after you well the food was fabulous and uh, not ridiculously expensive so i mean it really was good but then he opened the the salad bowl as a little sort of lunch place doing filled potatoes and that was enormously popular little tiny place only very very small but absolutely all the lunch times everybody trying to get in there and do, buying the stuff to take away and, uh, and the shield club was very popular very popular but Roy unfortunately he could start these things set them up and they were just right but he couldn't run them he would go in there of a night time to take the money out of the till go out on the piss and that was his idea of life you know and uh, nice nice chap nice chap but just no real business head great great starter couldn't run it and so many people are like that and anyway he got to the stage where he'd run out of money and he, he just needed to get away and he'd done a deal with um, first of all he, he, he sold it he sold the, the porthole restaurant the salad bowl and the shield club to a couple of chaps uh, George Hansford was one of them and the other one was Colin Groves they were partners uh, business partners and uh, they bought the, the business off him but they didn't want the nightclub all they wanted was the restaurants and the restaurant the salad bowl at that time had moved round the corner they'd moved it into a bigger shop just round the corner or, or Roy had I think Roy did that or else they did after they took it over I can't remember that bit but I know they'd taken it over and they did a deal with Roy whereby they said well you can stay on in the Shield Club rent free for so many years and this was part of the deal that they did when they bought it so they got it a lot cheaper I think well Roy had still got four years I think left on his rent free period but he he wasn't making any money he, he was he was sleeping in the pool room <laughs> he, got, he got a bed in the pool room he had a great big great dane dog which used to shit all over the floor and uh, he generally was in a bit of a state and he needed to get away from it really but ray and i saw the potential of the place and so uh, for a, a very small sum of money we agreed to uh, take it on what, what? and uh, we did that when we were still at the Sydney Hall it fitted in nicely because the Sydney Hall would f finish half past 10 11 but we didn't open the, uh, the nightclub until 10 o'clock so you know it just meant one of us had to go off work a bit early and go down and open up and then the other one would go later on whatever uh, and we had staff there as well so I, I, we already had something to do when the the business folded um, what, what, what but, year what year was this that you took it on do you know this one I think it's around about 77 um, maybe 76 I, I, I really can't remember uh, there's no sort of 
I can't think of anything that gives me a... Uh, most things you think, oh, I know, that happened then because so-and-so, and I remember that year, but I don't remember the, which year was which in those days. I just remember roughly what order it happened in. And I know Ray and I had taken it over before the collapse of the uh, of the bingo uh, empire. And um, we ran that for three, four years, I think. Uh, and at the end of that, we had a, a dispute with the landlords. Just difference of opinion. Um, we had a lot of trouble with late night noise. But it was very strange. We were getting people uh, objecting to our license because of the noise. And then when we investigated it, um, I said to this one woman who lived about 100 yards away, Oh, she said, we can't get any sleep at night. So the noise is two or three in the morning, the thudding of music and all this sort of thing. And I said, oh, well, what I'd like you to do, I said, next time you, you're being kept awake, would you please phone me and I'll come straight over and uh, listen. So uh, she did and I came straight out, straight across the street. And uh, she took me up to the, her and her husband's bedroom. Her husband was fast asleep in bed. <laughs> And the windows were wide open. I was in the middle of the winter, you know. All the windows were wide open. And I said, um, I said, do you all sleep with the windows open? Oh, yes, yeah, she said. I said, well, it's quite cold out, you know. And she said, uh, oh, yeah, we always have the windows wide open. Well, I knew she didn't, because you walked past there and see her windows closed. And she said, but you listen to that noise, no? I said, well, I can't hear anything, actually. And she said, oh, it's stopped. And I said, it hasn't stopped. I said, hold on a sec. And I, can I use your phone? Because no, didn't have mobile phones in those days. So I, I used her phone and I phoned the club. And I let her, I said, I said, gave her the receiver. I said, now listen, that's, you're talking to the girl on the desk at the club. And you could hear the music in the background, you know, quite loud. And she went, Oh, yes, I can hear it, she said. I said, can you hear it through the window? Oh, yes. I said, really? I said, are you sure? And she went, oh, well, no, I can't, actually. <laughs> it was just a load of bollocks. They, they decided that they didn't want us to stay out late. And so a whole consortium of local residents, I mean, most of the local residents would say, well, I wonder who actually lived next to, to the club, right next door to it, and he had the party wall. He said, I can't hear anything. Yeah, I don't, I don't ever remember it being a loud music club. It was a loud music club, but... Yeah, I don't ever remember not, it. I, I don't thought the noise would have been when you people left, maybe being drunk. Yeah, yeah. It, was a loud, it wasn't a loud, hugely loud music club, because we had a lot of people who went there to drink. Mm. And if it had been hugely loud, they wouldn't have gone. But it, it, we had a disco, yeah. and... Uh, if we had a live band on, which was usually earlier on, sort of 10 to 12, um, that could be a bit loud. But it wasn't ridiculously loud. And that so many people, the same woman who had uh, made a complaint, a woman called Barbara, I can't remember her other name, and she said to me, I, I met her in the street, and uh, I said, um, is, is it any better now? I said, oh, she says, fine. She said, no problem at all. She said, we, uh, we haven't heard anything for weeks. We thought you'd closed down. And I said, really? 
I said, no, we're open every night, same as usual. Oh, well, she said, no, it's, it's, it's great. She said, we've, we've been quite happy with that. A week later, she went into court in Bournemouth and gave evidence in the witness box that she was kept awake every night by the noise. Now, anyway, it was it resulted in the end that we got our opening time knocked back to one o'clock. Okay. We were the only one that got our time. I was going to say, so was Verdi's and Baxter's open? Yeah, all the others, they were all open until two. We had Verdi's, Baxter's, Caps Whiskers. um, Steering wheel. Uh, yeah, it would have been the still in the steering wheel then. I'm just trying to think whether it would have been the steering wheel or Harry's it was called afterwards. No, it was the steering wheel. So you still had the wheel, all the others, all open till two, and we had to close at one, you know. Anyway, and then we, had, we were having a dispute with the landlords anyway uh, about. Uh, um, they'd agreed to give us a, a lease at the end of uh, our rent-free period because when we did the deal with Carter we obviously involved them in it and we said to them well we'd be interested in carrying on past his end date we would obviously then pay an economic rent that's fine they said and uh, but then towards the end of our stay the, the restaurant downstairs had not been doing very well and they also started this business. Oh well, it's because of the noise from upstairs that we haven't been doing very well. It's, what it was was that they had changed the whole ethos of the place. He had uh, his ex-wife. One of them had his ex-wife in there running it. Very capable girl, but I don't. She didn't run it the same way as Pancho and Gigi, uh, Gigi had run it. Uh, it was run in a different way, and people didn't like it. That's all there was to it. They stopped coming. But of course they had to blame it on something, so they blamed it on the noise from upstairs. And uh, so in, in the end, they got down through our cellar and went into, uh, came up through the cellar door inside the building and nailed the door shut so that we couldn't get in. And uh, this was in the morning. I went down there to open up in, for the afternoon because you opened at lunchtime for the mainly for the fishermen. And um, couldn't get in, so uh, I, I found out what had happened. Mm. Uh, I got my solicitor, and we hot-footed it up to Southampton uh, to the High Court judge. Got an injunction against them to make them open it up, and I got them got it open in time for the evening business. Um, and there was an injunction on them not to do that; they're not allowed to do that sort of thing. So um, we we weren't on good terms, uh, and at the end of the the period, we actually agreed with them uh, that we would move out um, because we were never going to agree on it. You know, we'd already arranged another premises on the quayside, and unfortunately, that fell through at the last minute. So that left us in the middle of nowhere. And Ray, my business partner, he had um, opened a prize bingo on the old pier bandstand, the bit that got blown up. And he was running that as well. So he had something to to go on to. And uh, that time then I didn't do anything at all. I think for a couple of years, two or three years there. 
But then I went into the salvage business, but that's another story. <laughs> so, so Ray run the the bingo. So he he was probably running that in seventy six, seventy seven. Do you think? Because I he, remember I remember there being a little bingo side hall. As you went up the steps. Yeah. On, uh, on the left at the top, right. there yeah. was a prize bingo. Yeah. yeah. He would have started that round about that sort of time, probably. 77, 78 yeah. had a rough guess but uh, yeah he ran that until they basically closed the pier bandstand down, my, yeah. my first job was to work for the guy on the end of the pier bandstand who had um, that first year was model railway I bought that model railway oh did you? <laughs> all, the, all the engines and the rolling stuff and everything yeah, yeah. I, when they closed down okay. I, I bought all that what was his name? was it Tony something? I've been trying to think of his name since. They're very nice. For a bot, my first boss, he was a very friendly boss. Yeah, he was a nice chap, and I, yeah, I can't remember what yeah. his name was. And then the name. second year, they had this sort of like really terrible stuffed animal thing, but then he was in a gorilla suit, and then so people would come round and go, oh, God, isn't it awful? And then they'd go, ah. <laughs> so all the punters outside would see these people screaming, leaving. <laughs> right, I think, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, know, I, I know when we had the cinema, I had a lad who worked for me part-time who was actually working in that area of the pier, mm. and he used to uh, do a children's thing. Tommy, his name was, tall, very tall, thin lad. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, he used to dress as Rupert Bear. I I do, okay, I do. Yeah, I do. Sort of, yeah, I do remember a lad called to Tommy. I think he had. Uh, did he have a yeah, bald head? He did have a sort of like really shaved bald head. Anyway, anyway, yes. Okay. I, can't remember I do that. remember a guy called. He had Tommy. dark hair. He, yeah. he he was. Um, he worked for me uh, in the cinema. You know, he did Saturday morning shows and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it was a, the pier bandstand was an education, really. Do you remember Liz, who ran the cafeteria as you went up the top of the steps? Yeah. Liz Chorley. No, was her name Chorley? No. She's... She was Lynn Chorley's sister. Um, I'm trying to think who else was up there. The caretaker was called Mike. Paul Woods ran the uh, slot machines downstairs. But that was a Daler, Terry Daler Enterprise. That's the guy who was a boxing wrestling promoter and also the inventor of Daler board, the artist's board that they paint on. Right. Uh, it's sort of like canvas on a bit of plasterboard. That's what it looks like. Uh, it's called Daler board. It was his, that was his invention and he produced that. How am I doing for time? Doing? 11.49, yeah, I'm going to have to go in a few minutes. Because do, I've you got remember, to... do you remember, are the trains 5 past the hour or 25 past the hour at Weymouth? I think they're both, because they go every... They go, they go, they go, they they're supposed to go to Paul. Yeah, they don't, they don't go every half hour. How many people would go to the Shield Club then in an evening? It, it varied over the... We had it for four or five years, so uh, when we st first started, with nightclubs... When you change, have a change of ownership, you clean the carpets and you put a bit of paint on the wall, um, it, it brighten it all up, put in a, a reasonable DJ, and you do very well indeed for the first couple of months. And then it, it just gradually settles down at a level. 
and then later on in life you have other other nightclubs opening. I mean, the Cat's Whiskers opened. Um, you already had the steering wheel, but that was no worry. Uh, Baxter's, I think, had gone by that time. Uh, Televino around the corner, of course, was doing well. And, uh, Verdi's, as it became. Um, but the Cat's Whiskers was the big thing that happened, which knocked us later on, and the crowd takes a big dip then, because that was quite... Uh, they spent quite a lot of money on that and to get it... Uh, oh, to right, that was after my time. Where was the Cat's Whiskers in? Cat's Whiskers used to be down where the Colwell Centre is now, basically, oh, yeah. just next to that. Yeah, because that was probably a similar type of club to the Shield Club, wasn't it, I think? I think. Yeah, it was a big disco, but they had a lighted dance floor and all this sort of thing, yeah, which we didn't have. We just had an ordinary dance floor. But we had a, a, a mad manager, a chap called Paul Ireland, who was an absolute lunatic. Nice, nice fella. I used to play in a, a duo with, with him. We used to go out as a duo, playing guitar and singing. He, he was a very funny chap. He's dead now, but great shame. He sh- should have lived a lot longer. But he was uh, a little bit unpredictable. <laughs> but you, you couldn't help but like him. He was a bit like Basil Fawlty. <laughs> he used to have things like, he'd say, well, tomorrow night we're having Dance for a Fish. And you go, well, <laughs> you go in there and he'd have this shark or something that one of the fishermen had caught, a rubbish fish, no good to them. And he'd got this shark or a big dogfish or whatever it was and he'd hang it over the disco. Now tonight's winner of the best dancer gets the fish. <laughs> Nobody wanted the bloody fish. But they always used to go out there to see who got it. <laughs> it was highly amusing. 